Good morning, everybody. So I have to, I have to say something funny that happened. So during greeting time, and we're getting ready to, Bob's getting ready to come up here, and I'm talking to my good friend Kayla over there, and she noticed that there's a little juice box right here. And so I was explaining to her, because many of you know, I, I have an auto, uh, autoimmune form of diabetes, and I'm insulin dependent, and if I have a low blood sugar, I'm like, I'm always afraid I'm going to pass out on stage. And right at that moment, Something happened back there, and my, my voice came out over here, pass out on stage. <laughs> I, I don't know how many of you guys caught it, but if you were watching online, you might have been like, what was that that just happened? That's what the juice is for, and, and this is to make sure that I don't pass out on stage with a low blood sugar. But I always think to myself, it's kind of funny when you're like, that is like the least opportune time for my mic to have gone live, right, in there. So... So welcome, everybody. I, um, something that is kind of special when we're, we talk about God's timing and, and the way things work out. Um, months ago, I had told Bob that I would like to, in Mark, I'd like to teach on the transfiguration. I love this story for so, so many reasons. And so months and months ago, we talked about that. And, you know, we've, we've had breaks for Easter, and we've done some one-offs here and there. And so it just happened that it fell on Mother's Day. So I consider that a Mother's Day gift directly from the Lord that I get to teach on one of my favorite topics on Mother's Day. And uh, I love how that works. I love how that works. So we're going to start. I'm just going to kind of give you a little set the stage moment. So last week, Bob was in chapter eight, and we had gone through a period of time where Jesus is asking, um, who do they say I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter tells him, you're the Christ. And, and he gets commended for his, his faith and his just, ex- I don't want to use the word excitement, but it is excitement, the everything, how he is just 100% solid when he's talking to Jesus. And then Jesus predicts his death, and Peter takes a little bit of an issue with that, right, and re- rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus has to rebuke him, and it's a little bit of an uncomfortable back and forth because... Peter doesn't want this to happen to Jesus, right? So we're going to kind of continue down exploring that idea of who the the disciples were as people, what this would have been for them as humans, going through this experience with someone they loved and believed 100% to be the Messiah, All right, so we're going to be in Mark 9. We're going to be covering 2 through 13, but I want to acknowledge verse 1. There's a verse 1 in there. And when I did did my study, and I've heard this many times, some people believe that that verse 1 should really be part of the end of 8, and that it's really Jesus saying, guys, this thing, things are happening fast. You know, when I tell you, and I'm just just going to read this first verse to you, Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of heaven arrive in great power. So some are in the camp that this is just Jesus telling them things are happening, facts, pay attention, don't, you know, don't miss the fact that things are rocketing to this next piece. And some believe that this really is an introduction to what they're about to see in the transfiguration. When we talk about the kingdom of God arrive in great power, seeing the transfiguration and hearing God's voice. So, um, so I don't want, I wanted to acknowledge, I do know that verse is there, but what I want to be central to what we're talking about tonight or today is the actual event of the transfiguration. 
So we're going to start with verses 2 and 3. And we should have that up on the screen there. So six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. So we pulled a painting, a beautiful uh, Rubens painting of the transfiguration. So I want everybody just to start with taking a look at that. It's Jesus in the center. We've got Moses with the tablets. We have Elijah. We have Peter, James, and John. And the reason I wanted to bring this up first at the very beginning is because as we work our way through this passage, I want you to have that visual in your mind. And it may even help you in some of these parts to put yourself in the place of Peter, John, and James, what that would be like, all right? So just have that visual in your mind as we're talking about this. And let's see, you guys know one of my favorite things about studying the Bible is it's so real. It's relatable. People, some people think it's not, but it is. And that's what makes it so real to me, why I can believe the word of God 100%. And that's part of what we're going to talk about in this. So when I was breaking down what I wanted to talk about, what I wanted to teach on, so I wanted to talk about the who of who he brought, the where, the why. You know, let's start this way and let's see where the Holy Spirit takes me. So the who. He takes Peter, James, and John. Why does he just bring three? Well, in my study, and we can see as we read the Bible, that Peter, James, and John are often called the core three disciples. They're involved in very, very much, and they're very core to Jesus' work then and the work that was to come afterwards. And so if you are somebody who has ever had to hire somebody or bring somebody in to do a job, you're looking for the right person to do the job. And Jesus knew the right people to do the job. He knew the people that it would take to be able to move this forward in a very powerful way. They had to be able to bear what was about to happen. And they had to be able to believe with confidence. And Peter, James, and John had some similar personality traits as well. So John, again, passionate, or Peter, I'm sorry, passionate, uh, committed heart, unhesitating faith in Jesus. Um, but we also know Peter could be a little spicy, right? We just talked about what he did in chapter 8, rebuking Jesus about what Jesus said about having to die. And James and John, same thing, uh, sons of thunder, right? One of my favorite like nicknames, they're called the sons of thunder. And do you remember why? It's because they wanted to rain down called down fire on the people in a Samaritan village that didn't welcome them. Seems like it's a little extreme. Do you remember how in chapter 10 of the book that we're in now, you know, so if, if you're familiar with Mark, you're going to be familiar with this. In chapter 10, right after Jesus talks to the disciples in pretty good detail about what's going to happen to him, about his death, what's going to happen to him with that, Really shortly after, James and John come to Jesus and ask him for a favor. And Jesus asks him, what's your request? And I don't know if you guys remember what they wanted. They wanted to be able to sit on either side of the throne with Jesus in heaven. 
Now, beside the fact of totally not being able to read the room, right after Jesus explains the horrible thing that is going to happen to him, why, why would they even say something like that? And it came to me, and it, and it hits me in the story of the transfiguration as well, that they just wanted to jump over the ugly part and fast forward to what was going to be the miraculous victory on the other side. It wasn't, I mean, maybe there's some ego in there, but think about that as a person. Have you ever wanted to just jump over the ugly thing that's in front of you, the difficult thing that's in front of you? You're like, I know Jesus has something for me on the other side of it, and I don't even want to think about this part over here. Let's not even talk about it. Let's pretend like it's not going to happen. So the three of those guys, passionate, committed, far from wallflowers, right? They loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. So I think it makes a lot of sense that they were the three that Jesus chose to bring with them. And on a, on a separate just thing that occurred to me as I was studying James and John, James was the first apostle to die, and John was the last apostle to die. And I, there's something elegant, I think, about the bookends of the apostles' lives being held by two people who were there to witness this transfiguration. So the where he took them, that was my next step. Where did he take them? Well, it says that they took him, he took them to a high mountain, but it doesn't say which mountain. So I have to remind myself that if it doesn't say, then it wasn't core to what God was trying to relay, right? But we're inquisitive beings, right? So I can't help but try to look it up a little bit. And so I wanted to share with you a couple ideas, but I want to remind us, let's not be distracted and start to look at something that isn't core to what Jesus was trying to tell his disciples and what God's trying to tell us by sharing this story with us. So some of, the, some of the ideas our tradition holds that it could be Mount Tabor, which is really prominent in Jewish history. They would have been familiar with it in their travels. Um, it's not the highest mountain, but it's kind of set in a valley, so it still would have been impressive looking. It would have been a mountain. Some think it's Mount Hermon, which would have been closer to the previous events in Caesarea Philippi, so that would make sense, and it's the tallest of the two mountains there. But again, if the name's not specifically mentioned, I just kind of have to let go that I'm not going to know. You know, I can ask later if it even matters when I get to heaven. You know, I, I have got to feel like that's probably not going to be on my top list of things that I have to ask. But it's always interesting, right? It's always interesting to, again, try to help your mind wrap itself around the event because it's so huge. It's so huge. So then we come to why did he take them? Why did he bother to even take many accounts say that they went up there to pray, not just to be alone, but to pray. That would make sense. I think that is, is understandable. But past that, this event of the transfiguration in the vernacular is the big reveal. Have you ever watched those shows where it's the big reveal? And so they had seen Jesus commit amazing miracles. You know, he performed these miracles. They've seen it, so they know. And Peter has said, you are the Christ. 
But have you ever had where you've seen things and then you start to talk yourself out of what you've seen or out of what you know, what you know to be true, um, especially something that's so supernatural and so big? And so I feel like there, this is where God is continuing. Jesus is continuing to prepare the disciples over and over again for what's going to happen. Even though they seem sometimes clueless, he hangs in there. He's got to, because these are the men that are going to be spreading his word. They're going to be spreading the gospel. So he is committed to preparing them for what's going to happen. And this is just a whole new level of confirmation. So they, they see this, what they call the Shekinah glory of God. And the word Shekinah is not in the Bible. It's a Hebrew word that means dwelling or the, the presence. And so this is the presence of God that we see with the, Jesus glowing like that. Unspoken glory. Now, it's been about 600 years from that point since anyone had seen that Shekinah glory. And the previous time was Moses. So if you remember the story of Moses, he comes down with the tablets. Aaron and the rest of the group had gone rogue, right, and had some problems. And he smashes the tablets, and it's a giant problem. But then he goes up for a do-over, a fresh time with, Jesus, with God, with God on the mountain for 40 days. And after 40 days of being up there with God, he comes back down and he's got that glowing Shekinah unspoken glory where his face is glowing to the extent that they make him wear a veil. They ask him to wear a veil. Now, most of what I have read and studied out is, is because it was somewhat disconcerting. It was so bright. It was all of those things. I read a couple scholars say that they thought it was to keep Moses from bragging on the fact that he was reflecting the glory of God. But when we study the Bible, which is here for us to study, we know Moses' character was not attention-seeking. He was not like, it's all about me. He was like the opposite. And that was one of the reasons why God chose him in the way that he did. So that's the, that's the only other time that really that phenomena has take pla taken place. So it wasn't an everyday occurrence by any means. And can you imagine if it was so bright with Moses, where they asked him to wear a veil, how much brighter it would have been with Jesus, reflecting the glory of God, but also being the source, because he is God. It would have been not something that you would forget, not something that you'd be like, ah, Gosh, you know, I had totally forgotten about that time. It wouldn't be like that. That would be the thing that would just cement it in, in their minds, that, that experience. And like I said, the word Shekinah is not in the Bible. And the other Gospels mention this experience, the transfiguration, the synoptic Gospels in specific. And synoptic just means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are written to where you can match up these um, events. So you can look at the transfiguration in one and then find it in one of the other gospels and you can gather some maybe some more details or some a little bit different perspective. They're the same stories with some different perspective, maybe some different details. And then John is not set up that way. And he doesn't specifically talk about the transfiguration, but he does seem to allude to it. And I'm just going to read this verse to you. This is in John 1, 
verse 14, the second half. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And then Peter, who is there um, and is being spoken about in this, this gospel of Mark and in this little section here, he also, in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, I'm going to read this to you, so just take a second to to really listen to this scripture because this ties in very much with where we're going. For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So for Peter, he's like, we weren't just making it up. We weren't trying to be clever. This is something that forever cemented in our hearts, in our brains. This is not something that we will ever forget. And this is much of what could drive them through all the things that they were about to face and all the things they faced afterwards, that knowledge, that confident knowledge of what they had experienced. So as if that wasn't enough, we move to verse 4, where it says, Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Talk about one of the most understated sentences on the face of the planet, really. Um, Think about this. Moses had lived about 1,400 years previously. Elijah, about 900 years previously. So so the disciples would not have just known them on sight. It would have had to have been some kind of divine revelation about who they were. And it doesn't state specifically, you know, did Jesus tell them? Did they just know? We know God is capable of doing whatever he needs to do in in that moment for what needed to happen. And when we ask, and before I even say the next thing, one of my favorite parts about this, I love seeing Moses in the promised land, right? That's, that, I love that. I love that. That's a redemption because I was so sad when he wasn't able to make it the first time around. So that's another one, but I love that. Um, but Luke 9.31 gives us a little insight about what they were talking about. It says they were speaking with Jesus about his exodus from the world. So I thought about this a lot. And I studied this out, and I can't really see Jesus needing really, he's not like discussing details with them, like asking them, so what do you think I should do? Or what do you think about this, right? They're discussing this, but, but I think it's more for the benefit of Peter, John, and James, right? Jesus knows what's going to happen. And I'm pretty sure Eliza, Elijah and Moses, they're in the loop, Right? And this is, yet again, them discussing Jesus' exodus from the world and Peter, James, and John being able to witness this themselves, right? I don't know how much of the conversation they heard, but obviously they must have heard something if they knew that that's what they were talking about, right? This is, again, preparation, okay? I need you guys to focus on what's about to happen. I need you to focus on what's the important thing here. From a symbolic look at this, Moses represents the law, right? He's holding the tablets, the law, where every piece of the law points to our need for a savior. And Elijah represents the prophets, where all the prophecies in the Old Testament point to the Messiah, they point to Jesus, all right? So we've got the 
law, we've got the prophets, and then we have, which is like the sum of Old Testament revelation, and then we have Jesus, who is the fulfillment of it all, right? He's the central. There's no mistake of why in that painting, Jesus is in the center of that. He's the fulfillment of all of that. So God doesn't do things randomly. There's purpose in everything he does. So I, I believe there was purpose in them being privy to this conversation that was happening. Because if they weren't supposed to be, Jesus could have just not brought them up on the mountain, or he could have been like, Moses, Elijah, let's go over there, right? Let's not be in front of them. He easily could have handled that. So then you figure, okay, so this amazing scene has unfolded, and we come to 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, and Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. How much do you love that, right? If you were trying to make yourself the hero of a story, you know, you probably wouldn't include that little piece, that tidbit of information. And who hasn't been there, right? So Peter's shook. He's a little shook about all this that's happening. And Mark, the writer, knows it. So how does he know it? So church tradition holds that John Mark, who is Mark, that we're studying now, that he was Peter's scribe. So when he is giving these details, and we notice there's a lot more detail that has to go, that ties to Peter. When he's giving those details, he's giving it because Peter has relayed this to him. These are Peter's stories, his sermons, his words, his experiences. And um, that makes it make sense. And it makes it a little bit extra when you can think about this being a little piece of vulnerability that Peter might have shared with Mark that made it into this gospel. Because in the other gospels, like Matthew 17.4, it really doesn't give a personal bent to it. It doesn't include anything like that. It says, Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. My favorite part about that is like, if you want, if you want, I could do this, right? Um, and then in Luke who we love because he tends to add a little more detail. He gives us a little nugget um, in here as well. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So who has, like, again, you're putting yourself in a spot, maybe you're camping or whatever, and you, you wake up and you're disoriented. Just imagine if you had been asleep and you wake up to this momentous event happening, right? And in, in your mind, have you ever been in something where you're like, okay, this is huge. I need to think of something really good to say. You know, it needs to be meaningful. It needs to be insightful. It needs to be, and he just blurts out, let's make some memorials, right? You know, and, and but I love it because it's not like he wanted to just run, right? They might have been terrified, but what's he suggesting there? He's suggesting building memorials, which would mean we would stay. They're shelters. We, we could stay here. He's terrified, yet he, it isn't lost on him how amazing this is. 
And so then we move on to the next, the next piece. And I have to give Mark props for being able to cover an event like this in 12 verses, like crazy succinct. I can't even imagine. Um, so verses seven and eight, then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus with them. So God the Father verbally acknowledges his son so that they can hear that. Moses and Elijah, they might represent the law and the prophets, but it all comes down to Jesus in the end. Once again, God is revealing Jesus' deity so that they are without question and providing Peter, James, and John this shared experience, this shared experience so that they can move forward and confidently believe. So we talked about, I mentioned earlier, about John being the last apostle to die. And if you remember some of the stories when we, when we get to talking about the resurrection, it talks about John and Peter, when they find out that the tomb is empty, they run to go see this. And John gets there, but he doesn't enter at first. Can you imagine what's going on in his heart? What am I going to see? And then it says that he entered and he saw and he believed. We as human beings, sometimes that faith part is so important. And sometimes God has the mercy to allow us to see so that we can believe. He knows what we need. So for each of us personally, think about what is that one piece? You know, the transfiguration up until the point, that was like the icing on the cake to be able to help them believe. But for you, what is that icing on the cake? What is that one experience for you that was so real and so personal with God that you carry it with you every day, fresh, like it happened to you just yesterday? What is that? Think about that. When you're, when you're faltering, when you're struggling, what is that thing that you're like, you know what? I go back to this every single time and it redirects me and it gets me back to where I need to be because God gifted me with that. He gifted me with that personal experience so that I can know that he is there. So now, so all this amazing stuff has happened. And the voice has come down. And he said, listen, you know, this is my son. Listen to him. And so as we move into verses 9 and 10, it says, as they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves. But they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Oh my gosh, my heart breaks for them. You know, they're on board. They don't want to tell anybody, but he just six days, six days ago, in no uncertain terms, said what was going to happen. Have you ever known someone or have you ever been the person who's been in denial over a critical diagnosis for someone you love? Many of you know that my dad 
passed away in February. And he'd been sick for quite a while. And my mom, so rock solid in taking care of him. My sister was able to be there actually when he passed away. But it was, it went on for a while. And I was the same as the disciples. I knew it, but I couldn't let myself know it. I kept in my heart that my dad was going to rally at the very last minute, and this was not going to happen. And I, I read this, and I think, you can't be that dense, right? You can't. He's not talking in metaphors. metaphors. He's not making it confusing. It's not flowery language. He's laying it out for them. And they love Jesus like nothing else ever in that world. And they just are having the hardest time to believe that this is really going to happen. They just want to skip that ugliness. Think again back to when I talked about James and John want to be on either side of the throne, but just skipping over what had to happen in order for Jesus to be on the throne in heaven. Just totally ignoring what had to happen first. I'm sorry, that just makes me weepy, guys. <laughs> so 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. Then they asked him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? And Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? Again, they ask a question, valid question, and Jesus is like redirecting them. That's not the question that you guys would be asking. Now remember, the second Elijah that they're referring to this is John the Baptist. And we know this from Scripture, Matthew 3, 3, and I'm just going to read these. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. In Luke 1, 17, he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will prepare people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And note that it says there, it's the power and spirit of Elijah, not Elijah reincarnated, but John the Baptist fulfilled that role of Elijah by pointing people to Jesus. And this has already happened. This is back in chapter 6 of Mark. So this has happened. And yet they're still asking questions about that. And Jesus is having to redirect them. That has happened. You need to be focused on the thing you're supposed to be focused on now. He's clearly trying to redirect them. He clearly gets that it's either not sinking in or they are just unable to accept that this is a reality for them. And then we come to the last scripture, verse 13. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. That little last section, just as the scriptures predicted, to remind them what else are the scriptures predicting. If, if it has happened to John the Baptist already, the second Elijah what has that put into motion when we look at our timeline? If that was accurate, then we can believe that the prophecies of the Messiah, what's going to happen to him, are accurate as well. 
So Jesus keeps setting them straight, but they keep avoiding the truth. So one of the, holy, the things I prayed about with this, and I feel like the Holy Spirit just, just brought on my heart, was asking myself, can the difficulty or enormity of a situation keep us from acknowledging the reality of what's happening? And I think the answer is 100% yes. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen with other people that are going through things that are so difficult that they would do anything to not have to face what's in front of them. And Jesus told them, but they still couldn't accept that it was going to happen. And ignoring it didn't change the perfectness or the inevitability of God's plan. So what does that mean to us? It means for us that we need to listen closely to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us so that we're not missing that the, the work that he has us to do. We aren't missing the preparation that he has for us. He equips and he prepares us for the trials we face because no amount of denial will change the trajectory of God's plans and purposes. We can make it harder on ourselves, but it doesn't change that trajectory. He's got the final word. And we can't skip over the difficult parts just to get to the blessing because the trials are the very preparation of our character and our hearts for that blessing. After going through these things, how prepared were the disciples to have the patience and the heart for the people that they were reaching out to? Worship team, you can come up. So we're going to go into communion. And I'd like, you know, for you guys just to take a moment before you come up and take communion to thank God that we don't have to go through those difficult times alone that we've got the Holy Spirit because of Jesus' sacrifice to guide and prepare us every step of the way. Ask, ask the Lord to reveal to you what is that hard thing in my heart that I am not willing to acknowledge, that I think that I have to bear by myself, and the Holy Spirit is telling you, no, you do not have to bear it by yourself. Not only am I there with you, I will help prepare you so that you can not only get through this, but that what is on the other side will be worth it. He has got something for you that is worth it on that other side, but we just can't skip everything that's in the middle. It's there for a reason. It's there for a reason. So we have a few different ways to take communion. At the crosses, we've got juice, we've got... Um, Gluten-free crackers, we have bread. You can dip it in there. You can serve yourself, serve your family. Bob and I will be up here with wine. But I just, I am so relieved to know that no matter what it is, that I can ask. And he will order my steps. He will prepare my heart. He is the reason that I can bear anything because I don't have to bear it because he does. He does.